very interested in the way the Arctic is this place, this region, where things gather. Toxic substances, objects, things like mineral dust and sediment. It all accumulates there, but it has this lively presence, in a sense, and a materiality. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Undead Matter Podcasts, a series of conversations about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson, and for this episode, we have our final delve into icy frontiers. Artist and filmmaker Shezad Darwood speaks with social, ecological, and geopolitical anthropologist Mark Nuttall. They delve into the accumulated residues, sci-fi imaginaries, and other-than-human cosmologies that bubble up from the deep ocean and geological subsurface of Greenland's complex landscapes. Interspersed with enchanting creation myths, narrated by Greenlandic storyteller Maria Kroetzman, this episode is a journey through the differing life rhythms held in these lands. Hi, Mark. Hi, Shazad. How are you doing? You all right? I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Great to talk to you. Yeah, great to be talking again. My interest in Greenland, it's obviously one of the clear kind of icons of what's happening with climate change in terms of the melting ice. But equally, I'm interested in this idea of layers and what's beneath the surface, not just in terms of sediment, but also of species. For several decades now, I've worked primarily in Greenland and other Arctic regions, concerned with understanding human environment relations understanding the ways in which people relate to their surroundings, how they articulate those relations, and also how they relate to the non-human, including animals. The Arctic today is a place that is undergoing dramatic climate change. We see this very, very profoundly in Greenland. And for many people in Greenland, and for people I have known for a long time in many small communities who depend on the living resources of sea and land, life, whether it's at the ice edge, traveling on on the water, on eroding coasts, seems increasingly uncertain and their resilience is being tested. So how people think about vulnerability and risk in relation to their understanding of their surroundings and the world around them is something that I'm focusing on.
I'm also interested in different levels and different layers from understanding how people think about the environment and surroundings and the non-human world in many, many different ways, whether it's the way that people think about the seal that they've just caught out on the ice to the way that subsurface resources are at the heart of much of Greenland's domestic politics and discourses about future making today. So here, geology and deep time play into discussions of nation building and state formation, for example. And quite often, this may be inconsistent with the ways in which people who live in a smaller community and depend on seal hunting think about their future and their aspirations, I suppose, and their sense of sustainability. The mother of the ocean is known all across Greenland, pretty much everywhere you go. And there are many versions of her origin story. We also know that there are many versions of her story in Canada and Alaska as well. Here in Greenland, she is mostly known as Sissuma Omna in modern days, but in older times, she was more known as Imapukua. One of the many, many origin stories about Sissuma Omna is the story about an orphan girl named Nivika. She lives with a great hunter in a settlement, and the settlement is, uh, will usually move around during the different times of year. One summer, they are getting ready to pack up for the next season, and he is a very, very mean-spirited hunter. He is making her work twice as hard, and everybody is packing up the umia, or the longboat, so they can sail on to the next settlement. She is hurrying with all her might, and she manages to pack the only two things she owns in this world, which is a kushluk, a soapstone lamp, and her beloved dog. They get into the boat, and he is yelling at her and telling her to hurry up, hurry up. And as they get out into the deep waters, they're sailing out into the fjords, he suddenly gets up and he grabs her soap soap lamp and throws it overboard and then he grabs her beloved dog and throws it overboard and they fall into the water and just sink to the bottom. We first met through our colleague Jeff Diamanti from the University of Amsterdam who had us both out in Ilulisat as part of his At the Moraine set of round tables, I guess, for environmentalists, artists, anthropologists to all be literally at the moraine on the edge of the glacier and to sort of think about the point in time we're at. I thought that might be a useful jumping off point. Gosh, that was just over two years ago now. I think uh, that was a, a wonderful experience. You know, when we went up into the ablation zone where we had this astonishingly direct encounter with cryoconite holes, which I think is something that we might want to talk about as well. I'm not a glaciologist, but of course the ablation zone is that part of the Greenland inland ice where a lot of surface melt occurs. You know, the cryoconite holes are very interesting because these were first identified by the explorer Nordenschuld in the 1870s when he was attempting to cross the inland ice and notice these dark holes on the ice. And cryoconite essentially is sediment. It's found on the surface of the inland ice and its uh, glaciers, those outlet glaciers. They contain windblown dust particles from Asian deserts, although scientists argue that much of this sediment and the dust particles have a more local or regional 
origin as well as from volcanic eruptions. Industrial activity on the other side of the world. But it's dark matter. These are little ecosystems in their own right. They have microorganisms that are found in the water that accumulates at the bottom of these holes. And of course, as we saw, you know, the inland ice there and the ablation zone in particular is just studded with these cryokonite holes. They're dark and they contribute to melt. And so you've got this scary situation where sediment dust is accelerating the process of melt. I love the debate, you know, the controversy in the scientific community about whether these are sort of local or transnational deposits. For me, this idea of migration over time, you know, it's such a sort of function of human hubris that even in terms of migration, we always get sort of sidelined by the human. (laughs) And we fail to see migrations of species, migrations of particulates and deposits. But I'm very interested also in how the notion of dark matter translates from a kind of astrophysics to something held in the ice. Mm. It's almost, for me, and I'm probably sidelining a bit myself here, there's almost something Lovecraftian about that idea of Mm. the cryokonite dark matter under the ice. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, the way in which we start to think about how anything like dust, I suppose, you know, it can enter our skin, it can get into our bodies, it can get into our lungs, but it also comes to rest in the depths of the ocean and it comes to rest in ice cores as well. So, you know, it gets in your eyes, it's in your nose, it's in your mouth, it's in your throat, and it's in your lungs. And we think about sediment and mineral dust that accumulates and settles on the inland ice and it has this origin from somewhere else but it still emerges from it as well and sort of gets embedded in these ice cores, but it gets washed out as well from the the edges of the ice and also becomes revealed by glacial retreat. I'm very interested in the way the Arctic is this place, this region where things gather, toxic substances, objects, things like mineral dust and sediment. It all accumulates there, but it has this lively presence in a sense and a materiality. So these contaminants, whether they enter the human and animal bodies through the food chain, They linger in these marine and terrestrial environments, but they also emerge from them as well. And I think we see this quite a bit, you know, with the melting ice, the things that glaciers reveal, whether it's in the Alps, with Neolithic or Iron Age bodies being revealed. Yeah, fascinating, really, to think about this circularity, I suppose, of these these substances. 
he grabs Navika as well and throws her overboard, but she manages to grab onto the edge of the boat. He gets so angry that he takes this great, great big hunter's knife and cuts the first part of her fingers off. They fall into the water and turn into all the fish. Navika is holding on for dear life, and she kind of manages to clutch on, even with her missing fingers. He takes his knife and he cuts them again. And the next part of her fingers fall into the water and becomes the seals and the walruses. The third time he cuts her fingers off and pieces of the fingers turn into everything else that's alive in the ocean. I know I always sort of tend to tack a bit more to the sort of poetic end of the spectrum. But, you know, for me, there's always that idea of a certain alchemy or transubstantiation in the very idea of dust itself. It's constantly not just transforming the environment, but transforming us. I'm sort of very interested in our relationship to dust or its relationship to us and which, you know, which precedes. I know that some of the deposits are said to come from industrialization in other parts of the world, but obviously some come from deeper time in terms of, you know, Asian deserts, etc., both past, present, and future, should the ice continue to hold up. Could you say something about the timescales involved? And I guess maybe just to confuse it further, not just the timescales involved in sediment, but how some of those ideas also map into a sort of creation myth or kind of uh, cosmology in, in Greenland itself? Oh, timescales. Well, if we take the inland ice, for example, this is the biggest mass of ice outside of Antarctica. 1.7 million square kilometers of ice, thick, probably 1,600 meters. It's known as the Great Ice in Greenlandic, Sumerswak. But it's a frozen archive like glaciers and ice sheets anywhere else. And each accumulated frozen snow layer contains these memories of what conditions were probably like with each annual snowfall, probably going back up to 100,000 years. And again, I have to stress that I'm by no means a glaciologist or specialize in this at all. But as a social anthropologist, I am interested increasingly in how we have to think about our place as humans within deep time and within this record and to sort of think back across these temporal and spatial scales. Scientists take ice cores, they analyze, they interpret ice cores, and they come up with a long time series of paleoclimatic data in many ways. And I think this does give us a remarkable insight into the history of the entire Earth, not just the local information about ice sheets and glaciers and so on. have this incredibly detailed record going back through the present interglacial record through to the last ice age when temperatures were far colder than they are today, for example. So these ice cores from the Greenland inland ice reveal how during these periods there were dozens of abrupt 
warmings and coolings. And during the glacial period, for example, I think there were something like 26 abrupt temperature increases that you know range between 7 to 10 degrees Celsius. And these glacial warm periods, which are named Danskor, Erska events after the two scientists that were observing them, are probably thought to be random, chaotic, and unpredictable. And of course, the latest IPCC report, which presents this code red warning for humanity. And and in recent years, we've been thinking about the importance of keeping warming of the planet to 1.5 degrees. And to think of these warm events several hundred thousand years ago, when the ice in the Arctic was probably 20 degrees cooler in some ways, and then warmed up 7 to 10 degrees warmer and so on. And I think this makes us think about how ice and temperature reinforces our knowledge of human life on the planet, especially over the last 12,000 years or so, but against a backdrop of climatic and geological instability. You know, I think what we are experiencing at the moment, in a sense, is realizing that the world is turbulent and volatile in a way that perhaps we, in recent decades, haven't really appreciated to a great extent. And in Greenland, my work with Greenlandic Inuit has always made me think and reflect on this turbulence and the volatility of the world. There's a word in Greenlandic called pingotitak. It means to become, to come into being. And this is the word that is used to describe nature or the environment. There's not really a word that one can translate from Greenlandic into English that just corresponds with our understanding of what we think about when we say the word nature or environment. So pingotitak is becoming. The world is constantly in motion. It's turbulent. It's volatile. It's unpredictable. It's chaotic. And people are brought up to live within and understand their surroundings as constantly coming into being. I mean, that idea of the constant change, I suppose, with the constant being out overlooking the ice field at Ilulisat, you know, I was immediately somewhat overwhelmed with a sense of the sublime with the kind of symphony of carving that's constantly going on. You know, you realize that you're in a symphony of turbulence. It's constantly moving, shifting, and the ground beneath your feet is not ground as such. Through my work with Leviathan in various different contexts, I've become very sensitive and fascinated to these almost interstitial or between spaces. It almost, for me, reminds me of Interzone from William Burroughs' writing, this space where you're between cultural, geological, you know, I'm probably embellishing Burroughs a bit as well and taking it in my own tack because of my experience and my research around climate. But I've been doing a lot of work and filming in Senegal recently, particularly looking at the mangrove ecosystem where you've got land and sea becoming this sort of semi-permeable membrane, but you've also got salt water, fresh water colliding. And, you know, what it generates in terms of possibilities, possibilities for kind of species adaptation, evolution, but even mitigation, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of very aware in the mangroves how there's a lot of work being done in terms of not just in Senegal, but in the Philippines as well about using mangrove biodynamics to mitigate sea level rise through planned growth and planting. 
because one of the things I know we've talked about a lot is adaptation in Greenland and the idea that for the rest of the world, there's this apocalyptic panic about the melting ice. But I know on Greenland, I've spoken to local politicians and others who were seeing it as opportunity, which I know when I first sort of stumbled into those sorts of conversations, I was quite shocked. But then when you spend more time on Greenland speaking to people, you start through a natural process of empathy to understand it from a range of vectors, including a decolonial one. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is a diversity of opinions and perspectives and understandings of climate change and what that might mean in Greenland, as, as you might expect. Of course, people are very worried about climate change, even at the political level. But nonetheless, it has been something over the last decade or more that I also have come to understand as I talk with politicians and business leaders that climate change is not this cataclysmic force that's about to descend on them. It may open up the possibility for exploration for minerals, which it is doing. But you know, climate change is often talked about as empowering in some ways. And it is, you have to think about it in that sense within a discussion of self-determination and aspirations for independence. Of course, in the north of Greenland, where the ice is melting, the sea ice is melting, and people are experiencing those effects immediately and directly, um, hunters who depend on ice to travel on in the spring and the summer by dog sledge to go out hunting marine mammals are experiencing tremendous challenges. There's no doubt about it. Down in the south, where there is sheep farming and agricultural experimentation. For a number of decades now, there have been projects for experimental forestry, for example. The sheep farming areas started to develop from about 1916 onwards. And sheep farming had started off as an experiment in the 1780s, actually. But in the early decades of the 20th century, there had been some warming of Greenland's southern coastal waters. Seals, which were the mainstay of the local economy, were moving further north. Cod had moved in, but also were moving away from these warming waters as well in some places. So the Danes introduced sheep farming as a way of trying to sort of deal with these changes, as a way for seal hunters and fishers to probably diversify their economy a little bit. So there's a considerable sheep farming economy in South Greenland, and climate change is expanding the range for grazing, but also for agricultural production too. So you have a situation in South Greenland where sheep farmers are shaking their head in wonder as they pluck succulent broccoli and cauliflower and grow strawberries and potatoes, and also expand the range of their grazing areas. And so this is seen as providing certain opportunities. I mean, Greenland has aspirations to increase its ability to produce its own food. Apart from the things that one catches from the ocean have to be imported. This is an expensive prospect. So of course, there are all of these projects that are talked about hydropower, particularly with renewable energy. So of course, climate change has a regional texture in terms of how it's experienced and felt and how people think about it. So I think this is something we have to bear in mind when we think about the effects and the impacts of climate change, whether it is all doom and gloom, or whether it actually does allow for certain possibilities.
Nivika can no longer hold on. She slips off the edge of the boat and she sinks into the deepest, deepest, darkest part of the water. She sinks down to the bottom and there, through, I guess, a magical transformation, she becomes Sesuma Alna, who then controls all the animals and all the sea creatures and all the fish that we live off of and make us survive up here during the harsh Arctic winter times. As I was speaking to people and learning more, I couldn't help but feel an empathy, possibly as, you know, the, the child of immigrants, that there was this sense that this provided an opportunity for self-sustainability in terms of growing food and also the ability to actually if not full independence, at least gain a greater degree of autonomy from colonial Denmark and the very problematic history there. I mean, you know, one of the stories that I felt very moved and upset by was, say, the forced relocation of communities from Kulisat into Block 9 in Nuuk. Nuuk is the capital. And there were a number of forced relocations under colonial Danish rule to uh, housing blocks. So fishing communities were forcibly removed to the city into very specific housing blocks where almost a whole village would be a floor of the housing block. And it caused a lot of rupture and damage to generations who suffered under that program. Yes. I mean, Greenland was essentially a colony from 1721 to 1953. Originally, certainly in the the early decades of, of that, Denmark and Norway were a United Kingdom. But the Danes had established a trade monopoly. I mean, Greenland was seen as a resource space in many ways. But then after the Second World War, this isolationist policy had to be revised. And there was the UN commitment to encourage states to decolonize. And a commission had been set up by the Danes in the late 1940s, which set out a plan to modernize Greenland and to industrialize the country as well. So essentially 1953, you see the ending of this colonial status and Greenland officially became a county of Denmark. And in fact, in the 1950s, there were a number of policy reports and and so on that referred to Greenland as North Denmark. Part of this modernization policy involved a modernization of Greenlanders themselves, that they were to become Danes. And so as is fairly common and typical throughout the world. Indigenous languages were seen as barriers to the development of societies. Greenlandic was not seen to be a language that was on the same intellectual level as Danish in terms of coming up with a vocabulary that would sort of accommodate these new technological and industrial policies. So essentially, you had a situation where Greenlanders were to become Danes. Part of this policy of modernization through the 1950s and 1960s was a move away from this small-scale subsistence hunting culture based mainly on seals and whales and fish and so on, and the development of a modern industrial commercial fishing industry with an export-oriented economy. Throughout the coastal regions of Greenland, people had lived primarily in smaller communities, organized socially and culturally around subsistence hunting and fishing. And so many of these small communities were closed. They were seen as unprofitable. That old trade monopoly was no longer to be the basis of the Greenlandic economy. 
So this policy of centralization was accompanied by a political shift as well. Navika has turned into Sesuma Alna and she lives at the bottom of the ocean in the very, very deepest, deepest part of the ocean in a little peat moss house that is guarded by her dog, which has turned into a giant, great sled dog. The entrance has a flowing river that flows out of the house and whenever she wants to send the animals that the humans are hunting to survive the very harsh arctic environment, she sends it out through the river and then out into the ocean. In order to appease Sesuma Anna, the humans have to adhere to something called tapu rules, a selection of rules that sometimes don't make any sense at all, but has ensured humans survival over thousands and thousands of years up here in the Arctic. The rules can be anything from being careful when you walk out in the ice or when you're walking in a snowstorm or the way you hunt. Women have certain rules pertaining to the way that they are sewing clothes or if they're pregnant and the rules are very strict especially when it comes to menstruation and birth and death. Whenever these rules were broken, Sisuma would get really really angry and she would hold back the hunting animals so the humans would starve. Whenever that happened, the humans would have to send out an Engeko or a shaman on a spiritual journey where his soul left his body. I thought for a moment it might be interesting to go into the future. I found myself very sort of fascinated from conversations that I had locally while both in Nuuk and in Ilulisat about where independence might lead. I think people seem to have a, a much stronger idea of the economics of it, but were less sure about the social dynamics that might sort of emerge, evolve. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that from conversations and, and research you've done. So the subsurface as a resource frontier is at the heart of much of Greenland's domestic politics and future making. So I'm interested in how extractive industries, for example, and the making of resources and the spaces in which they're located are bound up with this, but quite often this is inconsistent with an indigenous perception of an understanding of place. And so resource spaces are made. These are the places in which uranium is located, rare earths are located, ilmenite is located, rubies are located, and so on. And yet the environmental and the social impacts of this are quite often rather severe for people who live close to or by these these projects. And the way in which environmental and social impact assessments may empty the landscape of human presence and don't take into account these indigenous understandings of the world as coming into being as something that is always taking shape, where astonishing things happen, where people have these incredible stories about polar bears that become humans and humans that become polar bears and so on. And so everything that surrounds people, whether it's the animals in the sea, the fish in the sea, the ice, rocks, minerals, these are all non-human elements of a lively world and they all compose and bring that world into being. So these are my interests. How does this happen? 
what do people talk about? How do they express this? How do they feel when a mining company turns up on their doorstep and has no idea about these astonishing things that happen in the world around them? And how do they express this? How do they talk about the real nature of the environment? We could argue that Greenland lies to a great extent on artificial respiration from Denmark in the form of an annual block grant. This is something like 60% of Greenland's entire annual budget and its income. So it has to find a way of replacing that. And one of those ways has been talked about is through the development of extractive industries, mining, oil and gas, and so on. And so this has provoked incredible debate over the last decade or more. And it speaks, in a sense, to the aspirations and the social aspirations of the Greenlandic people. What culture, what kind of society, what kind of economy is Greenland to have and should it have? How is Greenland imagining itself into the future? And so there's been a lot of academic writing on future-making in Greenland and how these visions of the future dominate much political discourse, but also public debate as well. Interestingly enough, the proposed lithium mine in southern Greenland was recently blocked, which was kind of, I think, quite a surprise to a lot of people concerned. Uranium mine, yes. Uranium, I mean, this sorry. is something that for the last 15 years, an Australian company called Greenland Minerals has been hoping it would develop. And this is at uh, near a town called Narsak in south Greenland, a mountain called Kuenesuit, which means um, the great place of Angelica. And it has almost come to symbolize, I think, some of these tensions that are very apparent in Greenland today about the future. So uranium was first thought of as a key development in the 1950s by the Danes, and they imagined a future of extracting uranium from South Greenland that would power the Greenlandic nation. The uranium project itself raised all kinds of complicated issues that connected to autonomy, self-determination, but also the feelings of risk and anxieties that local people had.
It was interesting because I was following quite closely a lot of the protests against the uranium mine and how those developed. But interesting how, yes, it became very much about the sort of radioactive potential. But at the same time, there's a lot going on under the ice that I think people still have both a mythic and a sort of financial aspiration around. Uh, Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the lost city? Ah, in 1951, there was a new defense agreement that was signed between uh, Denmark and the United States, which allowed the United States to construct a series of air bases, one of which is Thule Air Base up in the Northwest. And this is a fascinating part of Greenlandic history into subterranean Greenland. The United States had a number of different military establishments and scientific establishments that were concerned with all kinds of things. They wanted to understand the nature and properties of ice, whether that was sea ice, but also the inland ice. They wanted to know what it would be like to fight on ice. And so a lot of investigations were carried out into the possibilities of living in the ice, under the ice, building facilities in the ice, in face of a possible confrontation with the Soviet Union. So in the late 1950s, a rather secret project called Project Iceworm um, was initiated by the US. And there's a big debate going on as to how much the Danish government at the time actually knew about the real intentions of the United States. Part of this project was a underground research facility called Camp Century. Begun in the late 1950s, around about 1959, had a nuclear reactor um, constructed underneath the ice Um, And it was part of this larger project called Project Iceworm, because an iceworm is a missile. And the idea was to bury these missiles under the ice in a range of different locations on the inland ice, and Camp Century would be the nerve centre of this. And why were they burying the missiles, Mark? Was it to retrieve them later or to think about their sort of shelf life? To fire them from under the ice. So to locate and place these missiles in the ice so that they couldn't be observed, they they were hidden. But some mechanism to fire them from within the ice. Yeah, and so Camp Sentry was the nerve centre of this huge initiative. So they'd be undetectable on radar. Yeah, but it was portrayed as a scientific research establishment. And all these wonderful voiceovers at the time talking about how this is man conquering the ice, reaching into the unknown and so on. So it was presented very much as this quest for understanding the ice and breaking down these icy frontiers in many ways. But the real purpose of Camp Century was far more sinister in some ways. Of course, there was a lot of scientific research going on there, but also this had a military imperative. A lot of glaciological research was done, and a lot of geological research was done by the US military. Much of this was funded. Very little was known about glacier dynamics and the movement of the ice, really, at that time. And so, having constructed this incredible network of tunnels and a place where several hundred military personnel could live, and even a nuclear reactor was placed in Camp Sentry under the ice. It was eventually abandoned around about 1965 because the ice was moving and the walls were beginning to be crushed and it became a very, very dangerous place. Climate change is now revealing parts of these subterranean structures under the ice or these subglacial structures. And a lot of concerns being expressed within Greenland as well as Denmark about the toxic legacies of institutions and installations like Camp Century. What really was buried there 
what is seeping out. And is the reactor still there? The reactor was taken out, but the concern is that climate change is revealing many of these Cold War sites of experimentation. And who is it that's now responsible for the cleanup? And, and the US would say, well, it's not us. And Denmark would say, well, it's not us either. And, you know, this is part of Greenland and so on. So it goes back and forth. He would go down into the ocean and try to appease her. And there is one story about the blind or who is uh, trying to save his settlement and he makes a seance. He takes his drum and he gets his hand tied behind his back and his soul leaves his body and he travels down to Sisuma Alna's house. When he gets to the stream, the stream is running the wrong way into her house instead of out of it. The stream is kind of foamy and there is sharp and dirty rocks at the bottom of the stream so nothing can run out of her house. He comes into her house and he sees her sitting there. She is missing her fingers and she's so angry and the breaking of the tabu rules has turned into filth which is now sitting in her very, very, very long hair. The animals of all the ocean lives in her hair from where she sends it out to the humans. And the blind Anyeko comes in and he sees her and she is so angry. He jumps over to her. She's trying to hit him and punch him away. And he grabs her arm behind her back and is trying to make her calm down. After a while, she calms down and she finally talks to the blind Angeko. And he apologizes profusely and says that the humans will do better and the humans will appease her and the humans will follow her tabu rules. And she looks at him and she says that they will have to do a lot better than they've done before. She allows him to comb and clean her beautiful long hair and put it up into a top knot. And after that, she's happy. She's clean again. She tells him that he can go back up to the humans, but for the first three days after he's back, they can't hunt anything at all. They will have to wait until she is sending the animals out. And on the third day, there will be a little seal, which will be especially for him and his people will have to follow him out and let him hunt the first seal. He thanks her and he goes back to the humans and he tells the story. I'm also interested in where it dovetails with both science fiction and some of the more esoteric stories that were going out in the 50s, you know, so Captain Bird's journey to the center of the earth and others that they're almost sort of a snapshot of the imaginary of the time you know, between the actual true sinister purpose behind Camp Century and these sort of mythic journeys beyond the known. How much do you think that imaginary is something we're able to look back on and see holistically? Or was it actually a level of constructed misinformation in the 50s to sort of create certain fantastical tales of burrowing into the earth and, you know, journey to the center of the earth, etc.? How much of that was a sleight of hand to distract people from what was actually going on? Going back in Jules Verne and even Edgar Allan Poe, you know, in the 19th century wrote about these holes in the earth. And 
Lovecraft himself writing about sort of things deep in the Antarctic ice and and so on. So there had been a, a long interest, I think, in these imaginations in the subterranean. I think in the 1950s, though, in the 1960s, much of all of this was just classified information. People wouldn't have known about all of these subterranean burrowings and so on. There were fantastic things that were being done. Networks of tunnels. Can you move military equipment under the ice through a network of tunnels? And the Snow Ice and Permafrost Research Establishment of the US Army was key to these endeavors in the 1950s. And there was this incredible mobilization of military personnel and scientific personnel. The number of projects that were being carried out is just astounding. And many of these are being declassified, or they have been declassified over the last decade or so. So there's just now becoming this greater public awareness of what was going on in the 1950s. And I think going back to this kind of a public imagination, probably most people wouldn't have even thought of the Arctic as being anything other than a remote place at the top of the world where nothing was going on. And so really our understanding of these massive mobilization of resources and technology and the building of even large cities in the Soviet Union. It was literally buried beneath the ice. Absolutely. People had no idea what was going on until after the end of the Cold War. But then thinking about the sort of failings of it, you know, just in terms of human knowledge, you know, the fact that Camp Century started closing in on itself. I was curious to think about, that's very much a sort of Western failure to understand morphology of the ice. But you and I have talked about sort of indigenous knowledge around the ice that goes well before that. It seems to have a better and deeper understanding of the ground or lack of it. Yeah, I mean, this is one interesting thing that during the, you know, these these experiments and this time, there was no attempt to talk to Greenlanders about their understanding of ice. And even the construction of Thule Air Base in the 1950s required quite a detailed knowledge of ice for many reasons, for shipping. Ships would go up to Thule Air Base, supply, not just Thule Air Base, but also supply installations that were weather stations, radar stations that were being constructed in Greenland and the Canadian High Arctic. So the Coast Guard, the military, they needed quite good information about how sea ice would behave and even icebergs. And even in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, nuclear submarines began to travel under the ice. And yet this was an area, you know, coastal region that was well populated by Inuit communities with this incredible detailed knowledge of ice and how it behaves. And yet nobody thought to ask those people, for example, about the ice. And so when I started doing my own anthropological fieldwork for the first time in Greenland in the late 1980s, there were people up in Northwest Greenland, actually still today, but more so then, who remembered seeing the shipping in the 1950s, who remembered the presence of and the activity of military aircraft and ships and so on. I mean, even landing on ice, whether it's sea ice or um, glacial ice, I mean, this needed to be understood by the military, by the Air Force. And one example, in the late 1970s, there was a, there were a couple of ships heading up to Thule Air Base to take heating oil and fuel. And uh, one of these ships, the Potomac, hit rather a small piece of ice. It wasn't an iceberg by all means. It was a small chunk of ice flow, I think. And hold the ship and a lot of oil spilled out. And there was quite a worrying stretch of polluted ice and sea. And this was all hushed up by the Americans for a few days. And I think after about four or five days, they contacted the Danes. And so this cleanup operation started. And 
I think the Americans had gone up there first before they wanted the Danes to go and help them to try and clean things up as well. But the effects of that oil spill were felt or were still being felt a decade later when I first started doing research in the communities close to where that oil spill had happened. Nobody had thought to come to talk to the local people about the impacts of that spill on the environment and what the effects might be on seal hunting, on going out whale hunting and fishing and so on. But people were noticing what they thought would have been the legacy of that spill as they were catching seals and so on, and seals with contamination and all kinds of strange lesions and tumors and so on. But it had a big impact on the economy in the, in the late 1970s as many seals were being oiled and so on. But yeah, there has been this erasure almost of indigenous knowledge, but also an erasure of indigenous presence. You know, it's an empty white space. And so the military was, was out there trying to explore and understand this empty white space. They have to wait three days before they can start hunting again. The settlement is starving. Over the next couple of days, they start seeing seals and the walruses and the whales and the fish coming back into the ocean. But they wait and they're starving and they're so hungry. One hunter just can't wait anymore. He takes his kayak and he sails out. He is a really, really good hunter, but he just throws his harpoon again and again and again and again. But he catches nothing. He understands that from that day going forward, he will never really be a great hunter again because he broke the conditions that the humans had to adhere to in order for their hunting animals to come back. On the third day, the other humans of the settlements take the blind uh, by his hands and they lead him out onto the beach. They give him a harpoon in his hand and he kind of looks out over the ocean and then a little seal with a black smudge over its head puts its head up and he can sense in which direction that he has to throw his harpoon. He gets the seal, they take it into the land and everybody celebrates because now the starving period is over. They have a peace to Somalna, they start following her rules again and everybody will survive and live on to tell the tales of Sesuma Alna. The indigenous understanding of time is very different to our Western projections onto the space of Greenland. I mean, I want to move on to one of my favorite species, which is the Greenlandic shark, which has long fascinated me because it seems to immediately bounce us out of our self-absorption in terms of our human lifespans. I believe the eldest female specimen is still alive and she's going on 460-something years. What a fascinating fish and one of the world's largest sharks. Something that lives in the Arctic all year round, but very enigmatic. I mean, scientists are debating the age of the shark, but they're all agreed that this is probably one of the longest living vertebrate animals in the world. Yes, I think they've been dated between 272 years and over 500 years. I remember being in a sort of distanced way, quite obsessed by the Greenlandic shark, but then after spending time on Greenland, being quite shocked by how much the Greenlandic shark is eaten. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, 
how can you eat something that's so much older than yourself? I think for me, the Greenlandic shark took on this whole allegorical function. You know, I'm preparing to film one of my Leviathan films partly on Greenland, and the Greenlandic shark is a motif that I'm obviously very drawn to and would like to kind of feature in this film. And I remember sort of almost having the rug slightly pulled out from under me on Greenland when I realized that it's a sort of part of everyday life, you know, the sort of quotidian way in which this fish is viewed. It's not something that has really been eaten by Greenlanders necessarily as part of a daily diet. It's being caught by Greenlanders. Inuit hunters and fishers would put a a long line down. They would bait it. They would have used the skin for boots, the bones for knives, the teeth for hunting implements and so on. I'm very aware that in the West, the lifespan of the current oldest (laughs) surviving member of the species is often recounted as a sort of tagline that she was alive at the time of Shakespeare. And that's very useful for some people to go, oh my God, that's, that's that's a huge amount of time. I was wanting to kind of understand the sort of function or the symbolism of the Greenlandic shark for Greenlanders. Mm. There is an Inuit story about an old woman who would wash her hair in urine. And one day, the towel or the cloth that she was using to dry her hair after washing it in this urine blew away into the sea and it was transformed into the Greenland shark. And this relates probably in some ways to the smell of ammonia that surrounds the shark as well. So that's that's an origin story. But there are also other stories about the Greenland shark helping people at times of starvation and stories that were told by Greenlanders to Danish administrators, such as Heinrich Rink in the 19th century about people who had no food and and they saw a Greenland shark pushing a seal carcass to them and would bring food to them. So uh, this kind of ambivalence of the shark being something that is mysterious and unknown, but at the same time, a bit of a pest, you know, a little bit of a problematic animal because it disrupts your fishery and your hunting practices. So a competitor, a little bit of a pest, and yet thought of as something that should be respected because it would bring good fortune as well to people and help them in many ways. And how does the Greenlandic shark fit into the basket of other sort of iconic species? So it's had this presence deep below in the darkest depths of the sea. It's not an animal that necessarily lives every day in people's conceptual worlds, even though it's present year round. And people would encounter Greenland sharks probably in this way as a competitor. In places like Iceland, of course, the meat of the shark is eaten. It's uh, extremely poisonous, so it has to be buried for months and months, possibly even years before it could be palatable. But it has been eaten, but Greenlanders wouldn't eat shark meat if they didn't have to, because they knew it was very poisonous, but it would be used as dog food. So when hunters would go out and catch a shark specifically to to feed it to dogs. But because the 
toxicity of the meat even affects dogs. There's a word in Greenlandic called which is to be ill or drunk from shark's meat. Speaking of the ocean and speaking of the Greenland shark, the Iqalusuaq, there actually is some stories about how they are the protectors of orphan children and widowed women. In one of the stories, there is a settlement that has been going through starvation and everybody is dead except for two children. The two children are starving. They don't know how to hunt and survive. And the cries of their pain reaches an Iqalusuaq, the Greenland shark in the ocean. The Greenland shark hunts and catches seals, and then it crawls up into land and puts the meat in front of the house where the starving children lives, and it keeps hunting for them throughout the winter. They are able to survive until another settlement migrates by takes in the children and they live happily ever after. So thinking about not just the Greenland shark, but the symbiosis, obviously, with hunters and their dogs, what I've always been fascinated about in in Greenlandic culture is this idea of symbiosis across species, across geology. There's a very interesting sort of cosmology there. I was lucky enough when I was in Nuuk to see the National Day celebrations. In Greenlandic culture, there is a tradition of wearing masks, certainly on East Greenland. And I think it's more of a a way of representing various spirits. And, you know, this is a very, very central to contemporary Greenlandic theatre, for example, but also to uh, old traditions of drum dancing and everything else. So it was to symbolise in some ways the ambivalent and rather ambiguous nature of being human but also of, of the non-human. And so again, origin stories often depict a time when humans and animals were of the same essence. They have the same origin. Animals become humans, humans become animals, and vice versa. And so shamans have their helping spirits, quite often a polar bear, but one can never really be entirely sure of the true nature of an animal, nor can you be entirely sure of the true nature of a, of a human. And so I think this ability to blur the boundaries between the human and the non-human is often expressed in contemporary Greenlandic art. It's expressed in carving. It's expressed in theatre. It's expressed in something like the the painting of a face on on Greenland's National Day, for example. Yeah, Mark, you've spoken very well and very articulately to this idea of of spirits and and their function. And I I love this idea of of a constant morphology that seems to have been a kind of feature of the conversation. And I love this idea of wrapping it up in where the human becomes a shapeshifter and the animal becomes a shapeshifter. And actually, the dividing line between the two, let alone the geology and the landscape itself, starts to become more formless. I think that's probably a, a wonderful point to wrap it up. And thank you so much for our ongoing conversation, which I've, I've really appreciated. And I hope it continues for many years to come. This series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter program, please visit us on Instagram at undead underscore matter. Mm